0: Oh, you can't really talk about the early second wave of the women's movement without talking about lesbians.
1: This is a WLRN extended interview. The following audio is from an interview and discussion between four butch lesbians reflecting on the history of butch culture in the San Francisco Bay Area and the progression to where that culture is now. The discussion took place on June 23rd, 2018, the afternoon of the San Francisco Dyke March. It was moderated by Bay Area author and filmmaker Giovanna Capone. Also on the call are Mel Stapper, Pippa Fleming, and Artemis Passionfire. Before Giovanna introduces us to the discussion topic, Sekmet Shiaul recites a poem written by Ms. Capone for this interview. Giovanna's poem is titled Endangered Equals at Risk. You're on the list of those expected to vanish. I see the connection, a definite loss of direction in the loss of our lesbian spaces. We're being crowded out and drowned in the alphabet soup, a toxic goop that's eating us alive. Are we in decline? like the last spotted owl in a ponderosa pine. I do not accept the demise of my lesbian tribe. The L of LGBT is not a dying breed, but the living seed of future generations. A lesbian nation that will swing back, robust and green, stronger than we've ever seen, A modern day Amazon tribe Thriving and alive A silver labrus On every woman's neck Connecting us To matriarchs of old A golden age of female power Even in our darkest hour I see a day When lesbians of every age Come out strong And find vitality In life and love our bookstores, cafes, festivals, dances, films, vibrant and in full swing and nothing to stand in our way. Extinction is a vanishing, a languishing, a death. We're nowhere near that. We are alive. Walking in a redwood grove is where you see it best. The tallest living beings on earth encounter all extremes. The old stands strong among the young. The dead remain intact beside the living. Wounded trees are still giving. Every molecule of power to the young. Struck by lightning, bent by storms. Scorched by fire, they live through every dire circumstance there is. In 3,000 years, dead wood is good wood. And in the dense undergrowth, you see the evidence of green. A million needle leaves are sprouting.
0: And thanks very much to Radio Station WLRN for giving us this opportunity and this forum. Today we're going to talk about the history of the lesbian community in the San Francisco Bay Area, touching in particular on butch lesbian history, as well as general lesbian history in San Francisco and the East Bay, which includes Oakland and Berkeley. There are four of us talking, and I'm going to give some brief biographical information about our speakers in a minute. I'm a radical lesbian feminist. Activist, a writer, and a librarian. I'm concerned that many lesbians and probably many younger lesbians and newly out dykes don't necessarily know about the rich history of lesbian activism here or feel all that connected to it. So we're going to talk about that today, what it was like 20 to 30 years ago here in the Bay Area. I have lived in the San Francisco Bay Area since the late 80s. When I first came here, there were three feminist women's bookstores, Old Wives, Nails, Mama Bears, and Bodacious Books. hmm There were very popular lesbian restaurant called the Brick Hut mm-hmm. in Berkeley. There was a women's hot tub with an outdoor sauna in San Francisco called Ocento. Oh, I love Ocento. Yeah. yeah. There was an art and jewelry store called Women Craft West. And there was a lesbian performance space called Artemis Cafe. There were frequent women's gatherings and concerts and a variety of conferences for lesbian feminists, several lesbian bars, including Ollie's, the Lexington's, Amelia's and Maud's in San Francisco, and a few other bars as well. There were two to three feminist news magazines, including one called Plexus. There were women's publishing houses. Diana Press was one. And there was a much more visible lesbian community as well. And I haven't even mentioned all of it. And now, as of today, we have almost none of this. Times have really changed and lesbians have gone somewhat underground. We're still here, but we're not as visible, and nearly all of those businesses that I mentioned have closed. Luckily, we do have a very new archive called the Bay Area Lesbian Archive, run by three lesbians in Oakland. And we have the Suppressed Histories Archive, run by Max Dashu, and the Ivy Room, which is a bar and a dance space owned by women, and Laurel Bookstore, owned by a woman, and a few other excellent things that are going on, but it's not quite like it once was. I would say it's harder here, not so friendly toward lesbians and feminists anymore. The solidarity and sense of sisterhood and unity and feminist consciousness that lesbians had back then is certainly different. A lot got lost, yet a few of us are working every day to rebuild it. We're going to talk today with three butch lesbians who lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for many years, specifically going back more than a decade or two, and they're going to discuss what it was like back then for lesbians and what kinds of things happened to change this amazing, supportive environment and also a bit about what it's like today. They'll focus on butch lesbians in particular, but lesbians in general as well. I'll introduce them now. I'll start with myself again. Giovanna Capone, I'm a radical lesbian feminist, author and editor, an activist, animal rights advocate, and public librarian. I was raised in a working-class Italian-American neighborhood in New York. I lived in San Francisco and have been here in the Bay Area for many years. We also have Artemis Passionfather. She is of New York City Jewish heritage. She came out in 1981 in Boulder, Colorado. She moved to the San Francisco Bay Area in December of 83. And she's a martial artist, retired tradeswoman, goddess worshiper, gardener, and Butch Dyke Amazon. Artemis moved to Nebraska in 2013, where she lives with her Butch spouse. She currently works in the field of security. We also have Pippa Fleming, who is a black, butch, lesbian, feminist, performance artist, writer, and spiritual practitioner. Pippa is currently in pre-production for Stepping Between Storms. That's a performance exhibition based on her memoir. We're also joined by Mel Stapler. Mel is a radical feminist, ex-punker, retired firefighter, Mel became legally blind in a fire, so she understands disability from the inside out. Mel grew up in a family of five kids with a single mom. She won a full academic scholarship to an expensive women's college. She's more comfortable in mixed groups than all white ones. Even though she has a good income at the moment, she's still the same working class like she always has been. She lives in the Redwoods and feeds a bunch of feral cats and goes to feminist events whenever she can. I just want to say thank you to everyone for joining us and start off with the first question. Please talk about when you lived in the San Francisco Bay Area and what was the lesbian community like back then, and specifically for butch lesbians. Well, I can say when I was a butch dyke back then, there was no such... You were butch or you were them or neither, but there was no such thing as trams. Maybe somewhere in history, but... um, it was totally comfortable being butch. Nobody was pushed to be trans or actually cared about it. I don't think they knew about it then, but it's becoming a big fact now. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like back then for lesbians? Uh, you lived in San Francisco. Uh, how far back did you, were you living here? I'm from the Bay Area, so I moved to San Francisco when I was about 22. But I grew up in Hayward, which is close by. Hayward. Exactly. Hey. Um, I came out in Boulder, Colorado, and I was very radical, sexually radical, and I had to come out to the Bay Area. But I was also very politically radical. And then, but before that, I went to a try to live, do communal living up in Oregon. It rained for two weeks, and when the sun came out, I decided I'm headed to San Francisco. <laughs> so I was like, I can't take all this rain. And so I lived in the YMCA. They had a women's floor downtown San Francisco. And I explored the town, and they had Old Wives Tales. And up and down Valencia, they had Artemis Cafe, Old Wives Tales. I can't remember when it passed West. Maybe it was there. They had a Cento. They had Good Vibrations, the sex store, but it was Willie Treleski. They had Amelia's Bar. It, it, was, it was like Dice Row, the whole street, other than the Hispanic population, which it was because we couldn't afford the gay male Castro. Was all dykes positive? Dykes were really visible. Dyke businesses were really visible. And I remember going to Artemis Cafe. The Budapest had rituals there. Um, it was like a lesbian heaven in a way. I mean, for a city environment. But then, over time, slowly, one business after another began winking out bit by bit. Um, in the East Bay, they had Mama Bear, and then there was a, I think there was a woman's place when I moved over to the East Bay in 84. You know, I lived two blocks from Piedmont Ave, and you could see lesbians all the time. You know, lesbians and butches were really, really visible. Really visible. We had our own spaces separate from gay men. We had um, our own little magazines and our own little, you know, newspapers and not that there wasn't conflict. There definitely was conflict between different sectors of the community. But you could choose which sector of the community you wanted to be a part of. You had choices. And so it was Brick Hut. And my partner at the time, Mary Genoy, she took me to Brick Hut. And so we had our own space. And I personally believe you cannot have a community unless it's grounded in a physical space. So online can be all fine and dandy, but unless it's grounded in the physical space, the same with Michigan Women's Music Festival, unless you have a community grounded in the physical space, you can't really have a real community. And we had it back then in the 80s. Yes, I remember that, and I'm glad you mentioned the Women's Place bookstore. That was another one, the great store that we had in Oakland. And yes. uh, I, feel, I feel lucky to have witnessed some of that stuff uh, when I got here in the late 80s. Uh, it was vibrant. That was one of the reasons I came here, actually. Mel, did you want to add to that? I was totally butch, but it wasn't a big deal. Like, nobody tried to get me to be trans, or there wasn't hostility from any other lesbians. It was just very comfortable, and I was part of the political scene, the punk scene, just everything. And there was no uh, problem being a butch dyke. I knew mean, there was no pressure to be anything else. And then there was a whip wizard Lounge, too. And nobody really mentions that, but that was a women-only dyke space where they had bands and stuff. And want to talk about funk, they had, um, or what was it, Tri-Base? They were originally called Venus Envy. They were now half men. Well, yeah, but they they would butch lesbians then. And because I hung out with some of those women because my sponsor was uh, Friends of Those Women and um, 12 Steps. And so I hung out with some of those women and we had a little small space in San Francisco that was in the mission and then it moved to the Castro where, of course, all the gay boys tried to crash it being in drag. So that was hard until, of course, it went under, you know, and there was a the usual argument about keeping it women only, dice only, and, and allowing others in. But there was also that space that was a dedicated lesbian space, too. Yeah, and I was really good friends in my early 20s with one of the women who was... A little butch died, like a baby butch, who was totally female-identified. And when I found out it was male now, or considered male. Yeah. I think we all know uh, women with that story. And I would love to hear from Tippa about those times 20, 30 years ago in the Bay Area. Readings, everybody. I was one of those from Massachusetts after I came out of the military and out. I went back home to Massachusetts and went up to Northampton, which was right uh, central. Predomin- white lesbians, let's be clear. You know, women of color were there. I was attending UMass, and I started a lesbian color support group in Massachusetts. But um, I was with a black woman, and we were like, well, okay, we need to do something else. And the word was out. That the Bay Area was the place to be if you were a black lesbian, a lesbian of color, if you were gay, if you had politics, it was just a hub. So my partner and I, Texas at Toyota, drove across country and moved to the Bay Area in 1987. And black lesbian culture was thriving, like we all are pretty much reflecting. Lesbians were visible. You know, we were a part of the architecture. We were part of the community. People did come to us for businesses. We had auto shops. We had bakeries. I launched our Shade Magazine in 1989, a of a magazine. I had my own production company. I threw house parties. I, threw, I was a promoter as well. And so I did collaborations with people like Chili D, people like Chantel, who did Club Mango. There was a very vibrant music and art scene where women and, music and just all aspects of creativity had platforms and venues with which to share with the different communities. Well, I was just going to mention, I wasn't really known, I think in the white community especially, but there was a black lesbian bar in Oakland, which you actually went at the door and knocked and somebody looked out at you, and then you were let in, and we went in and we were the only white lesbians there. So it was very <laughs> cool because it was definitely a central, at least bar, I mean... I was that great for communities, it was very cool that it was one place where black women felt fully comfortable, and it, they were the majority. We had Bella's, we had a couple of venues, but then there was a whole, particularly in black culture, house parties are huge in black culture. There was Eve producing events, Chili D was producing events, Melanie, the DJ, was food. So we were all known for our house parties, and hundreds of people in them. This was a little, oh no, these were promoted parties about home and house and food and games, we would do poetry. It it's just a really vibrant thing. So that's how a lot of people of color dealt with not being able to afford the venue uh, to necessarily produce events all the time. So we did what we always do, the house party. Are they all gone now? They're certainly not as popular as they used to be. I think people still throw their house parties and click, but the house party culture, how it used to be, is... On the rise again with some of the queer communities, but not how it used to be. There's a couple of venues at Lost that I've been to, queer parties that were held in like Lost or home or yes, death. I can't remember. Chaney Turner, I think, promotes some of that stuff. So it's going on, but certainly not with the violence that it used to be. I think that used to be uh, more of a lesbian coming together just in general is being willing to open your home and do things in your yard and in your house and invite lots of lesbians. That's kind of a way that things have changed now. Maybe it's partially because it got so much more expensive here to live here. A lot of women are, you know, wrapped up with trying to earn a living to be able to live here. I think that's part of it. I think the lack yes. of feminist consciousness is really less than too. Oh, yeah. Definitely. What Artemis was saying about we need a physical space in order to have community. We need physical spaces. It not that what oppression is about, pushing people off their land. I mean, that's what Patriot is all about. choke say to control people. I mean, I, see. I think that that's a really good point, HIPAA. We used to have all these little pick-up lesbian rituals. Like, we, you know, lesbian would organize a ritual or a house or would go off to the land. I mean, I went and did some of these stuff while well, I had my own falling out with her. But in any case, There were lesbians that did spontaneous things at their houses. I would go to rituals, I'd go to lesbian potlucks, we would have barbecues, you know. But the fact of the matter is I'm starting to feel like this tiny house movement and tiny apartment movement because that's basically what I moved into at the Y is I literally lived in a shoebox. And that's when, before the earthquake, when the three-way wrapped around there, I was living in a little shoebox the size of a bathroom. When I first moved there until my partner and I moved into an apartment in Oakland, two blocks of Piedmont Ave, right across from the post office. And you can't mm-hmm. entertain if you have a space that small, and so many women, have been, including myself and my partner, have been chased out of the Bay Area. I mean, when I went to Michigan Women's Music Festival in 2015, I met all the sites I knew from all over the Bay Area. And almost every single one had moved and been priced out of the Bay Area. Either they moved to Northern California, or they moved to New Mexico, or they went back yes. to a closet and moved to some teeny little state. I really am thinking that the tiny house movement is really a way of controlling people. And then, of course, when you have something that small, you cannot entertain. You cannot entertain at I have a really huge house, and I actually wanted to leave it to Dykes because it's a huge house on, like, five acres uphill and one big flat acre in the red And um, I don't have anybody to leave it to, so I'd love to leave it to Dykes well, in eternity. That's a really great offer, Mel, so we'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to take you up on that. I want to move the conversation a little bit to, I think it's an excellent point about just how the economics changed and reducing our spaces, and then we can't entertain, we can't have parties, we're focused on survival. Um, Those were huge forces operating on the lesbian community. I think another big force is this trend that we see now towards transitioning Taking on the aspects of of men and trying to assume a different identity, let's talk about that. I'm a little hesitant because I know it's a very volatile subject, but I think it's important to talk about how it impacted lesbians here in the Bay Area, and the reason I chose the three of you to discuss this was because you have a history of experiencing that, witnessing the lesbians around you starting to take on that whole trend and decide they're going to transition, and how did that impact our community? Um, What were your thoughts on that, and what did you see? What did you witness? Well, I had two two lovers. I wouldn't say they were girlfriends, but they were two lovers that both transitioned. One I didn't know, but she's very male-identified back in Boulder. The other one um, I got involved with shortly after I got clean and sober, and, well, it was kind of a stormy relationship, and then after about a year, you know, we went to 12-step meetings together, and she met other lesbians that had transitioned, or wanting to transitioning, handsome butches, butches that were really handsome women, really successful, didn't have a problem dating other women that all of a sudden decided that they wanted to transition. But I, I began to see that a lot of those witches hung around gay or they hung around male to females, And there were certain ones that, you know, some of the MTFs kind of influenced them. And when they got around these certain crowds, they would start to talk certain ways because the transitioning starts in the mind. And when they started to see these certain cool people who were doing it, they became part of that and the next thing I know, they were spouting this stuff, and then I had the feeling that they would be next. You know, the bottom line is that they started out with no feminist consciousness. No, that's not true. Because the woman that I was with, she was a hardcore, but I mean, physically very... You know, some of the issues that people talked about in your other interview, you know, she mm-hmm. really couldn't pass this female. She was, she was tall, she had a very low voice, she had very masculine features. But she was really quite feminine. But the fact of the matter, she couldn't get work. There was a certain level of mental illness she had. She was a major incest survivor. I think that's a big issue right there. And she constantly was treated like a kid because she was in that borderline where she was very male-appearing. But she was really quite feminist. So the next thing I knew is she got around a certain crowd... You can't just put it down to politics. There's other things that are involved as well. She got around this certain crowd and heard them start talking. The next thing I know, she was wanting to transition. It's like there's been some talk, that has been like a contagion. At first, it was individuals like, okay, I go to San Francisco from Oakland. Six months later, this one's saying that she's going to do the change, and then I go back Six months later, this one's going to do the change. Three months later, that one's going to do the change. And it was certain key individuals. And that was about in the beginning to mid 90s, I started seeing that. I didn't see that in the 80s when we had our vibrant, strong lesbian culture. But in the mid 90s, when people began identifying more as queer and with gay men. All the ones I knew didn't have any feminist consciousness, they were first to jump on the bandwagon. And everybody I pretty much knew who did have a feminist consciousness are the ones who didn't. And I I know that from spending a lot of time with them and ones who were lesbians but weren't necessarily feminist. But I hung out with them because at least they were lesbians. Yeah, Um, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons that women do uh, choose that route. And the whole body dysphoria thing. I mean, how many lesbians grow up and don't feel some kind of body dysphoria where you don't quite fit into the role that you're supposed to fit into? That's a really common experience for lesbians. Well, that's female hatred and what we've been taught, not that we're the wrong body. You know, because I I never get called a cheat, but I have the politics or the belief that I'm a woman and you're not going to change me. I think that's a great start, and I came out feminist too, but as a kid, I wanted to be a boy. I mean, the story a lot of these FBMs tell is exactly the story of my childhood. But the fact of the matter is that when I came out as a lesbian, the lesbians were proud to be lesbians. Butchers mentored each other. I had Butch mentors that taught me how to be a Butch and a woman. They took me to women's rituals. They were proud to be Amazon, you know, and that is part of feminist consciousness the Women's spirituality Movement. That's definitely part of it. But these witches were proud to be women. And they taught me that, but lesbian culture was strong then. We were like, we're Amazons. We're going to go into the trade. We're going to, you know, we're going to do what we want to do. We're going to go into non-traditional fields. I mean, lesbians were breaking ground, and it was... particularly butch lesbians that were breaking ground in all these fields. So we were pioneers, and and this was something we were proud of, but we've lost all that, sadly, I hate to say. Well, I don't think that we've lost all of it, but the mentoring part, I think, has gotten a lot weaker than it ever used to be. I would love to hear from Pippa more about that. I was just going to say that. (laughs) I'm learning how to expand my conversations about this subject matter in the sense of, I think that the way different communities are experiencing this particular battle around female erasure are very different because some of the things that white lesbians are going through, I just don't experience that as a woman of color. Mm -hmm. But I would like to say that We don't speak about the nuances of life and what a person will do to survive and what kind of thought or what kind of spiritual platform or what sort of emotional support that someone has to combat female hatred, particularly towards the butch. If I counted on a paycheck, I would have starved to death a long time ago. I, too, had to leave the Bay Area because I could not... I could no longer afford it. I, and I'm not willing to kill myself for a house. It's no, nice I mean, I totally relate to that. Right. See, this is why I'd like to say the conversation around. It's really, to me, at its core, patriarchy. We all know what it means to be a girl and what kind of training goes. Even if you... Like, I grew up in a home where I was allowed to be good. That was not an issue. But... You go out into society, you go to school, some of us were in churches. If you are a girl who steps outside of that box, whether you wind up being straight, bisexual, lesbian, whatever, you are punished every aspect of your life. If you don't have a support system, if you don't have mentorship, if you don't have a place to go, then maybe you might think that, oh, well, gosh, if I'm able to get this shit By saying I'm a guy, I'll do it. I need to eat. And the fact that we don't include that in our conversation, we're remiss to not say that, like, this is just some random, I don't know why they're doing that. There's social factors behind it. It's just like, talk about black folks who could pass. For me, it's like, I would like to speak about the conditions that we face that make us Maybe do things we're not really sure we should be doing or don't want to do, but we want to eat, we want to live, and we want to survive. So if you are 21 and you've been given this uh, portrait of the world, and then as a young butcher, you're like, oh, fuck, this is hard. Okay, well, maybe I'll do that. Okay, so we, we have to have some understanding about what the climate is for women. I gotta say, I was really lucky. I got a full academic scholarship to Mills College, which is a women's college. So it was way different to be in a women's college than, you know, a standard mixed-sex college. Made a huge difference for coming out and being a butch diet. I think that the forces that are on butch lesbians, there are numerous forces, and one of them is the economics of trying to survive. And I would think that especially women in alternative, you know, non-traditional. Fields jobs where they're surrounded by mostly men. The pressure to uh, let me let me speak to that because when I came out, you know, I worked a shit job after shit job, but I saw all these butches, all these strong butches that I knew were in the trade. And so they said to me, well, Artemis, why don't you consider getting into the trades? So I went to trade classes that were taught by lesbians, butch lesbians in San Francisco at John O'Connell Community College. I went to that for a year. We had women in apprenticeship. We had the infrastructure in place to get feminist and lesbian women into the trades they sued to get women into the trade, and so I had this ideal because these classes were women only at that time. They were strictly women only taught by lesbians to get us into the trades. and then we would tutor to get, take the tests to get into the trades. and I had this ideal that I would, you know, loving butches, I would have all these butches around me when I got into the trade. Well, I had no clue about how few women and how few butches really were in the trades once I got into it. And it was really, really hard to adjust to that male culture. But we nurtured each other in that way. And that is a very... The tradeswoman movement, as I've been told, is a feminist movement that has been led by butches, by basically butch lesbians. And so that was a way to get out of poverty because you could make... I mean, I was making $45 an hour. I mean, it took. You know, I started at 7 seven fifty, and then ended up with $45 an hour. And you learned, once you got into the trades, you had benefits, you had health benefits, you had a pension plan, which I'm living on now, which isn't that big. Uh, you know, and you made a good salary, you learned a skill, but it, it was a hard way to go. And those butches, when I had problems with those men in the trades, those butch women advocated for me. So this was very much a butch phenomenon, and it was a way for butchers to get out of poverty. And there was always a place in the trade, like, I never had a gay man come out to me in a trade. But we all knew who the other lesbians were, and it was obvious often that there was kind of a place that men were like, well, they already assumed you were dykes, even the straight women you know, if you were in the trade. So there was always a place, even if they begrudgingly, they didn't really accept this, they kind of knew that, they, you know, this is something that butchers is gravitated to. And it was something we gravitated to, to have a skill and to get out, to try to get out of poverty. I have to mention something. Back last, uh, I was living in a shoebox and desperately poor before I got in the fire department. And that was a place I could make a decent living with some, uh, sorry, to a kicking in with some security. Uh, The reason I'm in place now is because I was 100% disabled and I get a disability from the fire department, which is very high. So I live in a house that I used to go by and go, fucking rich people. So now I own one. But it all has to do with, uh, I basically gave up my sight to make money instead of being like somebody for money who doesn't have to nearly die to get money. So I still have my class consciousness even though I I make a good living and I live in a big house. Mm -hmm. Well, You were injured. I mean, you didn't give it up. You were badly injured. Right. Well, that's why I say I had to trade my my body and my eyesight to have money like other people have without having to work for it. (laughs) And that's a horrible price to pay. That's a horrible price to pay. Oh, I know. And that's why sometimes I'm like, is it better to be blind or poor? Because I've experienced both and like, it's really hard to be sight impaired, but it's really hard to be poor too. You know, it goes back and forth all the time. Like, I missed stuff I could do when I was broke and poor. But now I have other stuff, and I can appreciate but I still don't appreciate my injury. Yeah. The class consciousness is always there. Always. That's why I give away a lot of money, <laughs> if I can. But, but there's a whole piece where butches we are really, really oppressed when it comes to work, because that is why I had to move because they see me as a big woman, a butch woman, a lesbian, you know, big big butch lesbian come on the job, they're like, okay, you know, I'm there, I get my nerve up, I go out to get dispatched to a job and say, well, I'm sorry, I'm turning you back with, by my right of refusal. Well, why? I don't have to tell you. And they wrote that into the union contract, which was really the right to discriminate. They did that to minorities, they yeah. did that to women, they did it to those who were too pro-union or spoke out too much. The right, right. of refusal was a right to discriminate, and and when it comes to a recession, guess who gets to get the work? The good there old white go. boys well-networked. And some of us would be getting, like, maybe three months a year, maybe even less. I couldn't get a job more than two weeks, and the longest job I had during the recession was six weeks. And then when my unemployment ran out, that was it. So I think the whole piece about being butch, and even more so probably when people could speak to this, being a butch of color or being a fat butch in my case, you know, it's like they starve us out. They start, you, either you conform or you get starved out. There you that's go. That's shocking because that's one thing I never dealt with, and I was okay, always well, doing dirty jobs. The underpinning of all of this is, is patriarchy, the female erasure that uh, we're all dealing with and trying to fit into a, a patriarchal society. And Tipo and uh, mentioned that a, a little while ago. That's the underpinning of all of this. Right. Well, that controls uh, everything pretty much. HIPAA addressed that, trying to get work being butch, and even so, and and for me I could say as a fat butch, that's a lot of what I face, but as a butch of color, because I had one woman, one black woman who was bisexual on the job, this is a friend of mine, and she said, you know, when a white woman comes on the job, I'm treated worse, but you are the only white woman that comes on the job that's treated worse than I am as a black woman. So a lot of ways I allied with the black men and the black women, much more so than the white ones. But mm-hmm. well, we have a shared <laughs> common history. We have a shared trauma. So one of the things I say to people, just think about your everyday movement. I said this to one woman who I think she may be presented as a femme. Anyway, I said, tell me, sweetie, oh, why don't you go get a job at Pizza Hut? I love how I was able to tell you where to get a job. Yes, job. So... Where do you see butchers, front and center, masculine women, taking your money at the doctor's office, on the face of society in the economic realm? We're either big ditches, hiding in offices, so for me as a black lesbian, yes, the climate for lesbians in the day area, in the 80s, was grade and I had community and a spiritual community, but I have always suffered financially. Hey, Pina, yep. I'm curious, you know, how I do the, you know, is it better to be blind or poor? Do mm-hmm. ever have that thing where you look at, is it harder to be black or female? If you never. never, ever, I never divide myself from that. Employment for me, and this is where I think we need to just come together and just be more frank. We don't even engage in conversations about class, the way we use, just all sorts of things. Employment for me as a black, which lesbian has never been my strong suit. I have always struggled, and I better know how to do 20 things. So I have an experience. Oh, I used to be really, no, uh, in, in the game. No, that racism, because I'm also one of those women who look very masculine. And I love how I look. I realize that I am one of those beings that look like both sexes. Some of us do. Some of us don't. But because of that, uh, coupled with my presentation, oh, it's punishment. It's punishment. I've been punished my whole entire life for presenting the way I do. I've been denied plenty of opportunities. And I don't see one as worse to, to be black in America. To be a female in America? To be a butch in America? They're all off the chain. <laughs> that's am so curious is. if you dealt with that inside, or it just all stays together for you. I don't compartment. I'm a whole being. I experience these things as a whole being. I don't okay. have hierarchy, hierarchy. They're equally a bitch slap. All of them. To be female, to be a black American, to be a butch. That's a triple threat. I've never been to Bella DePaul. I've always struggled financially. Always. I've always had to be entrepreneurial. I can hang your drywall, write you a grant, babysit your kids. Right. What do you mean? And with black folks, that's the running joke among black people. You know, you've got to have 10 jobs, you know, to survive this motherfucker up in the air. Are you kidding me? So, yes, never, I've never had my A day. As far as that, <laughs> as a fat butch, as a, fact, is a big butch woman, as a big butch lesbian, towards the end, I began to be entrepreneurial. You know, I began to go ahead and get, you know, kind of bit small little jobs inside the community because the union wasn't providing me with the work. But they weren't yeah. enough to survive, but they were just enough to put a little food on the table or to pay rent for this month. If I work for three days, you know, and that was my mentality towards the end. It was like, if I get three days' work through the union, I've got my rent paid. But if I could do a couple little side jobs, I could pay for food, I could pay this bill, I could pay that bill, have a little cash in my pocket. So I began to depend on the community when we had community. And a lot of times the community did provide for me in that way, you know, the women's community you know, and, and, you know, word of mouth, okay, you know, she'll, you know, and so I started to get the feel of that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, and, you know, I found out from another fat woman that a lot of middle-aged fat women, in particular, and just like what you said, they go into business for themselves, because the same thing being fat as being black, you know, you can't hide that, not like being gay, yeah. you can hide that, it's like right there, you know, and they see, as soon as they see a fat woman or they see a black woman, or especially if you're Butch, it's like, forget it. I don't want you. Know, I'm turning you around, sending you back to the hall. Why? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have to say. That's right. There's definitely been with the multiple oppressions going on, and uh, most of us or a lot of us face that. I want to ask, I'll move to a slightly different angle here. Do you ever feel like our contribution to society or to the community? as lesbians, as disabled lesbians, as lesbians of color, as fat lesbians, working-class lesbians, do you feel like they're being recognized, or do you feel like there's this tendency to wipe them out and and bury them generation after generation? Can we talk about that a little bit? I definitely think that's true, because I always had that sense of community. Um, The worst harassment I've ever experienced was the night after Dyke March, my partner and I, you know, we were dressed in our leather. We were dressed completely butch. She was femme, but she was just butch. that night. we went down into the train station, and these were there were these lesbians being hassled, and the butch lesbians in particular were being hassled by these two males, and this one was quite volatile. So I went and called the cops. They hauled the one off that was being really, really bad. He was really threatening, and the straight people all around they didn't say a thing, They didn't let. They didn't say a word. Nothing. And we got on the train, and he, this other guy who was drunk tried to follow us and try to sit with us, and the other butch said, no, you cannot sit with us, go away. But we were all so scared. We didn't go to our stop because we were afraid of being followed. We went to their stop, and they drove us home. But lesbians used to look after each other. They used to care for each other. Like I said, they employed me, you know, on little side jobs and things. We even had a little lesbian food bank in the East Bay. There was a little lesbian food bank, and we were really broke and starving. Lesbians took care of each other, and and they don't do that anymore. I didn't get that feeling anymore. I'd go to Piedmont Avenue, and I'd go completely invisible. I'd go to other places, you know, and they'd all be, you know, they all start transitioning. They'd all start imitating gay men. They'd all start, I mean, just, I've always been invisible but in Butch Sight. But my last few years in the Bay Area, I felt invisible. And I'm not the invisible type. Right. And I feel like we lost that solidarity. After I got hurt, Amy needed a show about death cheaters. And when they asked me to be part of it, I thought they're never going to do it because I'm an obvious butch lesbian. And the reason I did it was because I've never seen a butch dyke on TV except when it was about gay issues or whatever. And so I did it, and I, the word lesbian was never even said. And I got calls and letters from all over the country from dykes. Because they've actually seen a totally butch lesbian, obvious lesbian, on TV talking about their trauma, not what what they did sexually. I mean, yeah, that the, the media visibility is a huge area where we're we're just absent, you know. And uh, so yeah, every time there's one small mention, I'm sure it impacts lesbians everywhere. It, it was huge. I mean, it was like I had a third of the segment. It was an hour segment. And it was very positive. Nobody said, Oh, look at that lesbian. You know, it was like totally about something different. And, you know, I could be really obvious, too. And they never asked me about lesbianism. I think it was good for every woman who saw it, like finally to see one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think every generation we go through this where we're just kept so invisible and kept to the margins. And we have to keep uh, rebuilding our existence in our culture over and over every generation. Right. I think that force is going on, but it's the same thing as far as the erasure. Right. Well, the thing is, gay men get to keep their culture. Like, when we went to Denver Pride, there was this meeting. My partner picked up her chip my butch partner, she picked up her chick where she got clean and sober the very meeting she got clean and sober in 20 years ago, was just happened last week. Well, the meeting was all gay males. We were the only two dykes there. asked us, and it was the first time i have been a gay meeting in five years, because so there's none out here in Nebraska. But it was, the first uh-huh. meeting it was a gay meeting in five years, over five years since I left the Bay Area. And the gay meetings used to be about half lesbian, half gay men, until they became almost all gay men. And then the gay guy asked, Well, how come there aren't lesbians come to this meeting? And my partner didn't want to get into the whole tranny issue, but she said, The lesbian community is broken. It's really, really broken. But the gay male community is not, it's completely intact. Contributions to society getting erased. So, I'm a black woman. <laughs> Some so of these generation, right? tickled me, they just kind of tickled me. Because, excuse me, a race. We were put in ships, sold all over the world, kidnapped, raped, brutalized, set up economy, propped up economy, rape, generation. Jim Crow, Jim Crow, slavery, Jim Crow. We just got the right to vote, the Civil Rights Act. I'm a child of segregation. My mother grew up in Jim Crow. Excuse me, the black migrant, excuse me. We were- always dealt with uh, the oppression of being black in America. We are the most incarcerated people, yet only in this, excuse me? So for me, it's like, what, what have I not been on somebody's hit list for some reason for being a black woman? So for me, it's like, <laughs> this is what it means to be black and female, That some way, somebody has a reason to discount you, to discredit you, to not see you, and to perpetrate through a system designed to exclude you. If you're black, you know that. Right. That's the reality you face just being black.
1: It's now bad. add, let's
0: see do it. Now add, look. So, please, guys are like, what? When is, what? Racism? I mean... We're brought here on shit. This country still hasn't dealt with this racism. But I love Donald Trump being in office because it's bringing up all that creamy spillage. I was scared when you first said that. <laughs> I love Donald Trump. Oh uh, jack. Yeah. yeah. See everybody's so reaction. It's like, come on now, we know the racist history of this country. Let's stop playing. We just come from a legacy of racism. Somebody needs to deal with that anyway. So I want to say something. You know, as a white woman, I've always thought when slavery was supposed to be over, why wasn't the remuneration? Why didn't they get profits? of what all the white people made, all the money they did? Because black people wouldn't have been forced into poverty they didn't get any money, but they'd been slaves. So how are they supposed to move up if they have no choices and no money? You know, and the black people that did do well was a shock, and, you know, very few of them got to. But they should have been paid. You know, money should have been taken from the slave owners and given to their ex-slaves. You know, to restart start a life like everybody else got to. Uh, you don't treat people that you dehumanize in that way. That's against their principles. It's not about my affliction. We went from slavery to Jim Crow to segregation and all of it was impossible. It's a legacy. It's a legacy. So there has been no break. In the chain. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> this country is built on despising black and brown kids. Yes. Hey, black people, out that the White <laughs> House. <laughs> yes, we did. And more than what? Mm. So, well, now the country, country where I need be... to about, about a lot of this stuff. I mean, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, would... I don't know what else to say. <laughs> We're here, you know. So do you want to touch again on the issue of, of uh, uh, transition and, and this whole subsequent issue of transition Do we want to talk some about that? Well, I think to pick up what Tiff said on the whole legacy thing is that we had a rich lesbian history. We had a rich lesbian history, you know, you know, butches in the bars in the 50s and, you know, in World War II in the 40s and the whole thing about butches being thrown out of the military until Don't Ask, Don't Tell got overturned. But butches have had a rich legacy, you know, and I think that's something that is being threatened to be broken, that legacy. And, and what they're trying to sell it as, oh, well, we're moving on to another legacy, which means you know, shooting tea into your body is now our new legacy. Now, when I came out as a butch, the rite of passage was cutting our hair short, okay? Now, I know there's some butches with long hair, but for a lot of us, it was, we cut our hair short, you know, and I went through that, and a lot of other butches and a lot of other lesbians went through that, I and mean, you can always go it back out. But there were various things that, you know, now it's okay for me to wear male clothing. Male clothing fits me better. But this whole legacy that we have had as women over time, that you could look back all the way to the time of the Amazon, but even in more modern times, you know, uh, Natalie Barney, the ones in the 20s, you know, even before that, that witches have always had a place. You know, some were soldiers, some passed as males to try to, you know, survive out in the world, but to still women. But I think we're in a place of having that threatened, by so many young women choosing, instead of being tomboys, being trans boys. You know, it's like to take that into your body and identify as men rather than to expand the definition of what it means to be female, what it means to be a woman, can include us. You know, instead of no longer including us, you're no longer women. You know, we're always being told, oh, you just want to be a man. Now that legacy is turning to where women think they can actually be men. Instead of for our freedom as women, which is what feminism promises, as being a different kind of woman on the planet. Which mm-hmm. We've always been there, but now that's being broken. On the point of detransitioning, on that issue, you know, I run the butch, every woman detransitioning is welcomed because I think a lot of them get pulled into to work a year when they're young, and now they're seeing things, but I think having butch Dikes be there for them is important because they're getting so much pressure everywhere else, and we're the only ones who are talking sense to them about why they've transitioned. I could have been convinced to, but I know in this day and age, it's way harder to resist. So they're welcome on my page. What's it called? Butch still Tried to Be a Woman. And I yes. started it just because of the transition thing. So my page is basically, nobody's transitioned, but women who detransition are welcome because it's one of the few safe spaces for them. And I've heard that women who detransition get harassed really badly. The detransitioning workshop at the last Mitchfest had 150 women there, and the women at Mitchfest paid for at least 13 women who were detransitioning to come to the land to see what the female bride was all about. Like you've their female bodies, but I was shocked. When I found that there were 150 women at the detransitioning workshop. A lot of them were out Not all of them were detransitioning. Like 20 something thousand women on the transition page where they get support for transitioning. There's like thousands and thousands and thousands. I was shocked. Oh, detransitioning? No, they they wanted to transition from female to male, and there were like 18,000 members. No, no, I'm not talking that. I'm talking detransitioning. I'm talking about that was one of the biggest workshops that Mishpest was supporting right, women. Right, I agree. And how yeah. do women feel after they go so, uh, detransitioning, transitioning or did they have a positive output? They were kablos- I was actually there. I was at that uh, workshop at Mishpest in 2015, and what I heard from the women that were speaking is that one of the main reasons that young women, especially Drift towards deciding to transition is because our community as lesbians is weak. It's hard to find lesbians, it's hard to find mentors, like you were mentioning arguments a while ago. The fact that our community is weak and not like what it used to be, and there's huge support. There's huge Who's support in it? this transitioning um, crowd. There's lots of support, there's no welcome, there's lots of services. So I think a lot of young women, uh, especially those that have trauma in their background, uh, excuse yeah, me, weakening our community. Yeah, I'm of transitioning. I question because I've known about lesbians who weren't butch and didn't present that way. I think they were uncomfortable being lesbian butches who now transitioned and they weren't they weren't anything near butch either. So that to me is part of the rage. It's just women going, "Oh, I think I'll try it," you know. But yeah, I know so, you wouldn't have thought were butch. I would like to throw in the intergenerational perspective, as well as a woman who's an activist with young people, as well as a woman who actually goes to transgender things and listens to what's going on. My personal approach to speaking about patriarchy, as I experience it in the LGBT community and the outside world is to talk about it and to actually go and see something. So these are the opinions that I'm about to share. What I don't like about some of the ways that the lesbian erasure and the rage we feel and the betrayal we feel and the sadness we feel about the obvious systematic attacks on what we feel and that's She's like another wave McCarthy McCarthyism, you know, each generation has to deal with it. And we have the internet and social media platforms, so you can tap into whatever you want to. So I would like to acknowledge uh, that erasure and that's real. But I also would like to challenge us the way we speak about patriarchy, as well as what we actually know from the younger generation as well as the older about their process about, of transitioning. So I would like to say that as one who has sat in workshops and goes to conferences, not everybody who identifies as transgender takes testosterone. Not everybody who identifies as transgender have top or bottom surgery or wants surgery. I think that what I see with the younger people is a mix of some tea-taking, some people who can afford to take it to the next level, people who can't afford to take it to the next level, the underground aspect, the culture among young people. And I think we really need to get that to speed because some of what we're saying is based on our rage and based on our disappointment, and based on our sadness. So we need to take some responsibility, too, since we are the warriors. The transgender identity among young people is so fluid, they don't know what it is. There's clashes between the older transgender population and the younger. Wait, we were here first. This is what it means. So this notion, this kind of monolithic notion of what that means, and the lens caps with which we're willing to look. I'm willing to look through several lens caps. I also think, too, young people are bold, and they don't kind of care about certain stuff that we care about. Wow, you mean there's something out there for me to take that can transform me? Hell yeah, I'll try it. So I think there's generational approaches that answer. I think there's medical things. I think there's all kinds of Reasons why. I don't think there's one monolithic transgender definition that people who identify fall under. Just like there isn't one monolithic butch. So that's what I have to say about, um, just the identity as an identity when people say the transgender community and what, you know, I'm like, well, <laughs> that's so varied amongst them as well. <laughs> Well, there's an, another aspect. There's the pharmaceutical industry, which would rather see trans boys than tomboys, would rather see trans men than butches, because they can make money off it. So they're marketing it. And when you like talking about that, it's a, that gender uh, center in England, that they have statistics that we don't have. That one thousand percent of young women have increased in number. Like they might have two hundred a year, then all of a sudden in the last five years. Now there's a thousand a year, and they keep those statistics. Are transitioning? Yes. There is something societally happening besides the peer pressure. When I was in the Bay Area, young butches or young butches of a certain age were pressured by all their peers to consider transgendering, to consider you know surgeries. It was cool. It was the same thing to do. I want to be more macho than you. Plus, the economic forces, if they pass as a guy, they're going to get a better job than if they're a butch lesbian. And we all know the heat of being a butch lesbian and trying to get work, keep work, you know, be seen and visible in work. But if you pass as a man, and I know this is why that one ex of mine transitioned, because she was so masculine appearing that as a dude, she could just kind of blend in, go into the background and just kind of live her life rather than always being a target, which is really hard. But now, beyond that, is the whole financial piece from the medical, surgery, psychiatric, and especially pharmaceutical industry, the amount of money. Like, when I saw that they put $20 million into trans issues several years ago, some of those rich millionaires, rich gay millionaires, rich trans millionaires like Jennifer Pritzker, I mean, I thought, what's that going to do? And I thought, think about what would happen if someone left a $20 million legacy to the lesbian community. Right. What kind of resources right. we would have? What kind of background we would have? What kind of political clout we would have if we had that kind of money behind us? What kind of political power, what kind of loss we could have? Because we have to look at the money behind it. Because oh, there you That's there you go. Go. <laughs> your body, just as it is, your sex orientation, because eighty percent of those trans kids would have ended up lesbian or gay. Think about it. But they don't want non-feminine little girls and effeminate little boys. They want little girls and little boys that fit into that gender mold, that stereotype, and keep that stereotype going. You've got to ask these questions about the finances and about keeping the stereotypes going, and it is much worse now than it was in the 70s and even early 80s when when there was a lot more fluidity in the culture that men could be different, they could wear long hair and colorful clothes and be hippies, women could, like, wear a military guard and could experiment, and there was no talking about hormones and surgeries and all of that. I'd like to speak on the age issue. I think the issue between older people who are trans and younger people is the older people went through hell to be trans, and it wasn't so optional and easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but now difference is that there's a huge amount of security in it because there's so many. And like in San Francisco, I mean in this area, basically the term is, she drank the Kool-Aid. Yep. Um, What I've seen and what I know is to be true, that it's it's a fad now. It's more cool to be trans And these women who thought their whole life that they were men. You know, now it's like, you could be trans, cool, you know. In the old days, it was a nightmare for people who were trans you know right. like well, I would say you got the older generation cussing out the younger generation well, I think that's why though because they would do hell and now people just go oh I'm trans give me surgery you know and they they had a shittier life way shittier you know well there was the gatekeeping and now it's like anybody can walk in their bathroom and claim they're male or they're female exactly exactly you know and I think that's just now if somebody's been picking their trans their whole life and I don't really support it but I'm not going to give them shit like I'm pissed about the younger generation. Like in San Francisco, you know, all these women, women who aren't even nearly butch or have never thought about, all of a sudden talk about being trans because it's easier and it's part of the crowd. Well, here's here's the thing. It's, It's affirmation psychology. This whole, you know, with all these gender clinics and all these doctors being trained in the surgeries and the fact that the whole money piece is behind it creates all these services and the pressures on this young kid. Hey, you know, that kid looks like she's playing with boys toys and she likes boys clothes. She must be a boy. So let's go and trans her. You know, it's right. like this whole therapy, psychological, doctoring, surgery, pharmaceutical pipeline. We've well, got they never had to do psychological stuff, but, you know, they don't now have to, I mean, no, that's what I'm saying. But they had the gatekeeping back then that right. they have now lobbied to get rid of. And guess who's going to make the money off all of those bodies? Oh, yeah. The misery to your body. Rather than saying, hey, I accept myself as just the female that I am. Well, good well, point that you're bringing up. And uh, I would also like to add, we're in a very conservative time right now. Just the political climate is very regressive and conservative. And the push towards transgenderism just reaffirms all that, and it's reflective of that, because it's basically reinforcing the sex stereotype exactly. instead of challenging them. Exactly. Instead of challenging them and saying, hey, I can be a different kind of woman, or I can be a different kind of man, which is challenging the stereotype. Exactly. They are reinforcing and going along with it. Well, that's why, I, you know, when I go to a bathroom, I don't, I don't hide out. I go, yeah, I'm a woman. And I actually get more support than I would have thought of because I've had people actually... I've had husbands come in chasing me. And luckily I had Bobby, who's straight and feminine. She was standing there instead of me, so he, the guy went in and saw her and thought his wife was an idiot. Yeah, I always make it clear, no matter what, when people call me sir, like I say, no, I'm not, because there's so few of us who are out there now. You know, we've been mostly erased. I've been... Uh, some I would like to pull out the lens cap and address the larger issue of the human beings need to consume and to propagate, as they say, and to consume it, to co opt things, to absorb them, to suck them up. And I really would like to provide also another lens cap to a lot of trends um, around people's beauty, their appearance, the marketing of products, particularly for people of color, around um, your hair, your skin lightener, you know, always sitting in the way the market plays on oppression. They're all late. And things are very consumptive. And I don't just think that's the only... For me, I would like to say that I want to be very careful how I talk about what I see around this discussion because oftentimes it's just so whittled down from a, you know, this is how it the residential thing used to be and this is what it is. And, you know, I'm a fierce person, but I also am engaged with this population of people, the trends, and, uh, for me, a lot of what I see is about consumption and commodification, and I think American life is all about, well, I can absorb you, but I don't have to take you. Everybody eats Mexican food, we don't love that Mexican gardener, that Mexican housekeeper, we love your holly, but keep your experts uh, racism. We love to consume and commodify things. People are consuming all kinds of personas, all kinds of everything. So I, I would like to say that it's also bigger than that. You know, young people are marketing everything. In fact, they're hyper because of the platforms that they participate on, what they're in, in schools. everything focused. On consumption. You can be whoever you want to be. Uh, Rachel goes, or being black, black people being thin. I mean, we're, we we always exchange, but then we have a tendency as even to commodify stuff. So I would like to look at gender and stuff, talk about the conversation, just, oh, uh, it's not, it's also about just consumption, and it's also about. Things weren't available in the medical industrial complexes you damn right they were to cash on our consumption, our, our vanity, our low self-esteem or our high self-esteem. Look at the cosmetic industry. Look exactly. at. Look, look at all the industries that target the ego need to be a part of this capitalistic consumptive society. And we're even more off the chain now. You know, look at all the different facets of our cultures that are consumptive. So sexuality is consumptive as well, you know. And so back to you, Sipa So for me, I, I want to expand the conversation to speak about it like that. And also speak about that options available to you now if you're a person who wants to fuck with pharmaceuticals, are like you say, they're readily available. You think they don't want that money? They're like, line up, who, they're like, we don't care what the fuck you think they are or who you think you are. But that's the medical industrial complex, period. Right. So it's right. just relegated to what they're gonna sell and this, is like, it's the system we live in if you're a helicopter kid, and everything you get from social media is this, coupled with homophobia and the obvious punishments that go with it, then this consultive youth culture that means you have to buy in in order to be a part of it, and if you don't get this many likes, this, that, that, I wish we would talk about it like that more. we we'll are well, everybody they don't look good enough or are good enough. Here's another thing that I'm hearing the term transhumanism, like, we can download the consciousness into a computer. We could live forever. We could just, we could, you know, have all this biotechnology. We could have nanites. We could just become this. We can become that. Men can have uh wounds planted in them, and they can have their own babies. And Now that's what it really means to be a woman is I can have my own baby. You know, it's like this whole medical edge aspect to it that if you have the money, you can buy any kind of body that you want. I mean, if you look... At, I mean, right. I look at all the science fiction shows. I've been watching Westworld, and it's like, yes. you know, you can... You can, unbox, you can have robots that you can do whatever you want to them. You you yes. can become... Uh, you can wear a sex doll on your body, and you can look like a, a sex doll. Men who actually dress up like sex dolls. Right. I mean, you yes. can be anything you goddamn want to be. You look at... Uh, um Blade Runner and you know it's just all these things you can be this totally artificial being we just they have the baby. To make the perfect woman we can make you the perfect woman or we can sculpt you into the perfect man the whole virtual reality trend where more more were encouraged to live in virtual reality and not actual reality and it's yeah. a great way to, to control us even further is just to separate us from our natural state and exactly. remove us from, from day-to-day concrete reality is to have us spend all our time on social media, have us spend all our time imagining that we're, you know, an actual human lizard or some crazy stuff like that. I mean, that's part of transhumanism, and that's a whole discussion right there that uh I don't know if we have time to get into today, but... Uh, divorcing us, separating us from our natural state is a great way to further control us it's and further kind of control. Into, into consumers. And, uh, you know, spend half of our life on social media instead of uh, grounded in reality. Out there uh, in the world uh, radicalizing, out there in the world marching, out there in the world making real change because, you know, if we do all of that, then the companies can't make that much money You know, the media can't control us. You know, we can't be good worker bees that spend our money in these frivolous endeavors rather than making real social change. You know, like I saw when they smashed Occupy at Oakland and all over the country in one week, I started to lose hope that we actually could really make significant change against the powers that be. You know, I just began to lose hope. I think I know. about technology. You know, for me, because I'm so isolated, technology has actually been one thing that saved me, where I have a lot of human contact. So I think some of it is you—you you have to be intelligent enough to pick and choose, not buy into all that other stuff. Because for some of us, it's not buying into stuff; it's just having access to communication. It's a useful Good. tool. Well, technology <laughs> is how we're talking right now. We have a right. conference call. We're it's all in different tool. parts of the country. Tending to, you always have a, it's so a very different experience with technology. It's well, I'm addressing, I'm addressing youth culture and the consumptive culture around social media and approval and the like, and you know, because our culture is so broken down that you know we are that our young people are relating to devices. And that their parents let them have those devices, and that we're living in a zombie-consumptive culture, and so all kinds of issues that young people are facing are under fire. So I wish we would, you know, like yes, this is very true, but let us put a lens cap that actually gives us the full scope of why someone does something. It just seems like you know, marriage should stay from. I mean, the idea is like. I get on there, I stay firm in my beliefs, but that have such malleable minds is so different. And when you're young, you do have a malleable mind. You know, you're going to do what the peer group is going to do, most for uh, the most part, and what you're being sold to do, what you're being, what's being framed for you to do. And if you're there consuming a virtual reality, you're not acting out in a real reality, and they can keep making money off you. They can get all our information. They can develop our identities. And, and and there's nothing, we're not, then they're not a threat. They're no longer a threat. Except you know, what I'm putting the system that that be, you know, it's like if you have radical feminists going around saying, hey, a woman can be anything she wants to be, you don't have to consume this crap. You don't have to change your hair. You don't have to get skinnier. You don't have to change your sex. You can be just who, that, they're not going to make money off of us. They're not right. going to make money off of us, So that's the whole thing. What I'm saying about the medical industrial complex selling the trans identity, and now this whole humanism thing—it's like you can be anything you want to be if you have the money to do that. But you're not going to make real social change in what a woman can do. And, and, you know, and, and questioning—you uh, know—the racism and the and the sexism, and you know the real underlying issues will never be questioned. Because you're out in outer space in the virtual space. I think women. I think we need to wrap up because um, I actually have a Dyke March to go to in a few minutes. uh, We totally support you and having your ally Dyke going with you, actually holding up Dyke March for Dyke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's why there's going to be ten or twelve of us marching in a group tonight at So. Dike March is now uh, anybody and everybody. And can find it on the And um, I remember so. when they announced that. I'm going to tell you. I remember when I was at the Dike March. I can't remember what year, but it was in the 2000s when they say the Dike March is for past, present, and future females. Oh my I was God. outraged. Oh, I knew it too. And there were fewer and fewer Dykes on stage or dike-specific performances. And the last one I remember. Was Alex Dawkins up there with Frank, and I was in total heaven. Two radical guys, but the rest of them were like drag, sh- drag, drag kings and this and that, and, you know, it was just lame. Um, well, quickly, we, quickly, does anybody, uh, before we wrap up, does anybody have anything to say to the legend today? Any kind of concerns or warnings or predictions or conclusions uh, or affirmations? Young women see the female stereotype as something you need to make up. You know, the very typical one that's in the media. And women need to realize that that's a stereotype and that's not them. But I think they look at males as being more like what they want, so they become them. It's about buying into all that stuff that they're not female enough. I would say look at your Amazon spirit. You look at your Dyke spirit. We had it at Mitch Fest. There was 400 women that gathered in the last spiral. It was a magical moment. You are strong just as the female you are and being a woman-loving woman. And you can be exactly what you are just as you are now. And if one thing is having the Dyke solidarity. There is a magical aspect to being a lesbian. And like Pippa said, we are Amazon warriors. We are the warriors of the community of the lesbian nation and that we don't want to lose that legacy. There is a legacy there for us and there is hope. Even if you have to organize underground, there is hope. That's why they erased us because there was Michigan. I mean, that's why they erased Michigan. There's no place to have that. I would like to hear the lesbian community take responsibility for its own falling into the capitalistic consumption privilege thing. There are very wealthy lesbians. There are lesbians with intelligence and sold out. There are lesbians who are not being mentored. There are lesbians who are racist. There are lesbians who are classist. There are lesbians who participate very wholeheartedly in this system. All of this did not fall apart because we just were a little old lesbians. A lot of us abandoned. We got what we wanted. We abandoned it. We said no more. We got very consumptuous, and we need to take on mentoring young people, I think to demonize people that are actually facing struggles, oppression, and don't have all their things in place and being judgmental and trying to be in their heads, that doesn't serve us. I think getting into the minds of people and creating spaces to actually find out what they're thinking and where they're coming from so they can be exposed two different thinking, so that means creating spaces for uh, women who love women, but that is, we call it yoni banging, who, 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 who designers, whatever term you use, to identify that as an act of revolution, it is an act of beauty, and we really need to take on the responsibility of creating actual spaces for us to do our work. That is key, and I can't remember who said it. When we create those, can't nobody come in your house and tell you, you need to be, oh, stop it. My tell us <laughs> far more worship. We need to stand our ground. We need to either Amazon who say we are. My mentor was Audrey Lord, and my mentor is Angela Davis. How could I look at Angela Davis, Austin convinced he tell her I'm too scared to hold that to Stop it. But exactly. We have a responsibility. No, it's not easy, but we have to give these young people and people who are hurting, people who are pressing, an alternative space so they can absorb the knowledge. And not everybody just and People suffer from internalized oppression. I used to be a total Oreo cookie Uncle Carl okay I a stupid ass internalized racist shit The Audrey just looked at me and held my hand and said it's okay for you to see with black women so I'm not going to be so judgmental that I'm not going to create a bridge and a way to offer you an alternative that's what we do we cut each other off so, and that's me dividing cause our is heavily monitored heavily ID heavily being infiltrated to create mass confusion so we don't have conversations like this uh, we he goes Yeah, misogynist too. But we need it grounded in physical reality, not virtual reality, not only physical reality. Yes, we need it grounded in physical reality. Absolutely. And I would like to just say briefly I think there are many of us lesbians that are working very hard to recreate a strong community and recreate resources and spaces whether they're virtual spaces or whether they're physical spaces. There's lots of us doing a ton of work, and uh, I would like to leave on a positive note that that is definitely happening, and we just have to keep on. And we got uh, 10 or 14 women showing up tonight to march, in the night march, and okay. we're going to make our presence. We're going to be visible and make our presence known. And thank you for your work, Giovanna. And take a lot of pictures so we can see them on Facebook. Right. Sam. A friend of mine sent me a paragraph, a little bit about the history of the San Francisco Pride Parade. She said she definitely needs to do more research, but in the mid-70s, what we now call the San Francisco Pride Parade was first called the Gay Freedom Day Parade, and it was portrayed by the media as being all about white gay men. Media coverage on TV, in the newspaper, and magazine. It was part of what was then called the Gay Liberation Movement, the gay community, and the parade actually featured only white gay men. In 1976, a this friend of mine, she said she was living in a racially diverse dyke household of 20 something, and she remembered talking with her housemates and hearing that Dyke, and at least a few other households were mobilizing, and about to go to the parade committee and uh, carry signs demanding inclusion of lesbians, not only in the parade, but also the word lesbian itself in the gay community, whenever it was talked about. She says that she remembers in 1977 or 78, there was a call specifically for black lesbians to come out and march in the parade, and they did come out. She said uh, she's not certain how the battle ended up in front of the G, but she does remember that there was a lot of discussion about this issue for a number of years. Uh, not sure exactly who participated in those discussions and made those decisions, but the parade committee, uh, well, it was first called the Gay Freedom Day Parade until about 1981, and then the name changed to the International Lesbian and Gay Freedom Day Parade. She says she's not positive about this, but she believes it took place in a few different locations, including Golden Gate Park and from the Casco to the Civic Center and the Financial District to the Civic Center. Today, it's just called the San Francisco Pride March. Uh, So if you want to check out further information on this, you can actually go to Wikipedia and look up San Francisco Pride. I was there when they had the debate to include the D and the T, and they packed the board for that. And that was in 1994. 1994 was the last year that it was San Francisco Lesbian Gay Pride, and then after 1994, it became Year of the Queer, it was the next thing, and it included the LGBT. So I was there at that discussion, giving the lesbian separatist perspective. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Happy March. Happy Pride. Happy Pride, and uh, happy Pride to WLRN. Thank you for giving us this forum. Keep Amazoning on. Right on.
1: This has been an extended WLRN interview about the history of butch lesbianism in the San Francisco Bay Area. Interviewees included Artemis Passionfire, Mel Stapper, Giovanna Capone, and Pippa Fleming. I'm Sekhmet She-Owl for WLRN. Over and out.